We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Hopscotch on September 26, 1980. It was written by Brian Forbes and Brian Garfield, based on a novel by Garfield, directed by Ronald Neem, and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. Co-writer Brian Forbes was the initial director, but withdrew during the prolonged pre-production process. The source book was much darker, and the film was initially set to star Warren Beatty and Jane Fonda, until Beatty had a falling out with Warner Brothers, and the project was delayed. At one point, George C. Scott was attached, and Cliff Robertson was briefly considered, until the studio decided he didn't have the draw they needed. I would think the George C. Scott version would have probably been a darker version? Yeah. I would think so. Walter Matthau was disinterested in working on a film that required shooting in Germany, where he had lost family in the Holocaust, until director Neem agreed to cast his son and stepdaughter in supporting roles. Director Neem didn't think they could get Glenda Jackson for the film, but evidently she had just worked with Matthau in 79 on a movie called House Calls and was excited to work with him again. The characters named Follett, Ludlum, and Westlake come from the authors Ken Follett, Robert Ludlum and Donald E. Westlake. We open at a parade. I think this is Oktoberfest. Do they say it's Oktoberfest? Yeah. I, well, I don't know if they say it, but it, it looks It seems like pretty clearly yeah. Oktoberfest. Yeah. They're outside a beer garden, and Kendig enters the tent and ascends to the stage in the middle to take photographs from a high angle. He spots the head of the KGB, who he knows personally. He also sees a woman with a sweater place a cigarette pack on a table where it's then collected by a man in a jacket. He photographs both people and makes a signal to other members of his department to apprehend these people. The man in the jacket hands off the cigarette pack to the head of the KGB very blatantly before leaving the tent and is subsequently arrested. Kendig follows the KGB head out of the tent himself and outside he speaks with Yaskov and greets him like an old friend. They seem genuinely happy to see each other here. Kendig talks Yaskov into handing over the MacGuffin here. Yaskov says you should work for us before he leaves. But he does give him the cigarette pack, and it has what he was looking for in it still. Can you define MacGuffin for me? Uh, MacGuffin is the thing that everyone's trying to get in a scene for a movie, basically. Oh, okay. So, like, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction is a MacGuffin. Because gotcha. it's what everyone's fighting over. You, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's an undefined thing that everybody yeah, wants. Right. I mean, we, we see we see some film, but we don't know what it what relevance it has, and it has no future relevance for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, in the bottom of this pack of cigarettes, it's like a microfilm reel to reel. So it like mm-hmm. actually has the two different sides of it. You could just drop it into a projector like this and mm-hmm. it would play. Wait. I, you, you think it would look like a reel-to-reel thing? I think it was just those old, those yeah. old windy film it's canisters. Like two things that yeah. Were don't you remember those those yeah. thin, those really long thin cameras that you would put these kinds of film strips into that would it would wind it from one end to the other? No. I, I that yeah. So instead of like a thirty-five millimeter 
where it's being unwound progressively. Yeah. This had just a square cutout in the reel. So you had the two reels, and it's winding onto the other reel, and there's just a small square cutout, and that's when you when you click the shutter, it exposes onto that part and keeps yeah. keeps rolling. Okay. It looked like it, it would have to be like 8 millimeter or smaller probably. Yeah, I mean, I think reels. it was for a special right. spy camera or yes. something like that. But it was, it was as Richard describes, one of those completely enclosed systems where you're not unwinding it and rewinding it after you finish the taking all your pictures. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was usually cheap for cheap cameras. Right. But when he first opens the cigarette pack, you can still see all the cigarettes in it. So it looks like he like switched it out for something. But then when he dumps all the cigarettes out, you see this thing at the bottom. Yeah. But it, I think that right right away sets off that Kendig and this KGB agent like play by each other's rules. Like they're not trying to screw with each other. The yeah. two of them like understand the game. Um, and because he lets him go. Right. Which is becomes a problem for him. But but yes. he's not interested in in having him be replaced. Right. Uh, Joe Cutter picks Kendig up at the airport in Washington, D.C., and he tells Kendig that Meyerson is very mad that he let him go. On his way through the office to speak with Meyerson, Kendig knows the names and faces of all of the office secretaries, and they all seem very happy to see him. He's clearly been working here for a long time, and he cares about his coworkers. Meyerson asks to speak with him in private. He's very pissed off that he let Yaskov go, and Kendig tells him that He's too new in this division to understand how these things work. Suddenly, in the middle of their conversation, Meyerson picks up the phone to call his wife. It happens very abruptly. Like I think it would have made sense, more sense, if she was calling him. Mm-hmm. But he like picks up the phone to call her. Yeah. Well, I think he's he's attempting to be rude, but I think it makes no sense for him to do that mid conversation. I think it would have been just as rude to answer this call from his wife here. Correct. So they could have just done it that way, but. It feels weird in the scene because um, it seems like he's going to like tell her some information or she's going to tell him some information about. Well, I, I actually think relevant. that what he does is ruder than just taking a call because it's not like he's spontaneously getting a call and being like, oh, you know, I'm going to it'll just be a moment. He's like, I purposely don't care about this conversation. I'm going to follow up with other business. Yeah, it's weird. While Meyerson talks to his wife, Kendig just walks around the office inspecting how Meyerson's decorated it. He sees a picture of Meyerson pointing a gun directly into camera. He has his firing range targets framed on the wall. They're not even super impressive. Uh, it's not the best grouping I've seen. Meyerson's wife seems to be objecting to staying at their summer home this year, and he's suggesting renting it out on the condition that it would not be rented out to kids or pets or Democrats. Kendig explains that he knows Yaskov and has for 20 years, and that if they take him out, that he'll be replaced and it will take six months to find out who replaced him and another 18 months to figure out the new guy's style. Meyerson points out that Kendig isn't here to make policy, but to act on policy. As punishment, Kendig is transferred to the filing section in this office building for the remainder of his time with the service. I mean, is it policy that he had to take him in? Uh, I, I mean, mean, I suppose it might've been the order. Uh, I don't know even if it was the order, but I guess if you have a high value target, that you can capture, yeah. yeah. You take that opportunity to capture them. But I think it's it's totally valid to, for the devil you know sort yeah. of argument. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that that's the whole part of the plot of uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is is that you know these people know each other and they they respect each other in a way you know they're adversaries but they understand why they're adversaries. Yeah. I wish we had gotten a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Mathow as Smiley. <laughs> Have you watched the Alleginness one? I haven't. No. I haven't either, but I should. 
I hear it's good. Meyerson also explains that he'll be replacing Kendig with Joe Cutter. And he says, he's 20 years younger than you. And then Kendig says, he's 21 years younger than me. Because he doesn't, he's not ego-driven and he doesn't care about right. the age difference. He's just trying to be accurate. On his way out of the building, Kendig checks into the filing department to take a look at his own file and to basically pull everything that they have. And he fills his file with the contents of the neighboring Kinberg file. Kendig then shreds his entire file. An agent tells Meyerson that Kendig never showed up for his filing job, though he did put in a call to Salzburg, Austria before leaving that day. Meyerson doesn't seem to care at all because all he wanted was for Kendig to be out of the office. Kendig sits reading a menu on a restaurant patio overlooking Salzburg when a woman tries to get his attention. She asks if she can join him to recommend a wine because he doesn't know much about wine. And she tells him that the choice depends on what he'll be eating. And he's like, oh, is it really that important? I don't really understand. And she asks if he prefers wine young or old. And he says, a bit older. Yeah, so at first I thought, okay, this is a really, really elaborate code. I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) are they talking about prostitutes? (laughs) I was like, is he trying to negotiate a prostitute? And they're using wine so they don't get in trouble? I was like, do you prefer a young wine or an older wine? I was like... What is happening? See, I thought they, well, I thought they I were just, just flirting. flirting I thought they were just flirting with each other, and yeah. was, it was it was it was code for her. But then I was bothered by the fact that he said he liked them a little older because he's clearly like he's way or older, years than, older her. than her. Yes, he's like fifteen <laughs> years older than her at yeah. least. So I'm like, she, you can't you can't call her old. You're yeah, old. I like old ladies like you, <laughs> person who could be my daughter. <laughs> but she tells him that older wine is better because it has time to settle and it requires exposure to things like oxygen. And then Kendrick's like, are you serious? Like, he's, he doesn't believe this spiel that she's giving him that suddenly, like, he doesn't even want to play this game anymore. He's like, are you a, a wine salesperson? Suddenly they're locked in a kiss, and then she asks where he's been this whole time, and we realize they know each other. She takes him home for lunch because she says the restaurant is terrible. Um, they don't have good food here. At the house, she introduces him to her pet dog, which is like a, a Doberman or something. Yeah. And she explains that he only bites people that he doesn't like, to which Kendig responds, Oh, I only bite people I like. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> uh, Kendig points out that someone has followed him here outside, and he tells her that Meyerson forcibly retired him from his position. She asks if they're still keeping tabs on her, and Kendig says, Well, we knew you married some old Nazi. Oh, come on, Kendig. He was Austria. So was Hitler. Yes, but he had no sense of humor. <laughs> In any event, it seems like the guy's dead and she's made a full-time position out of managing his fortune here. They play gin rummy for a bit, and when he loses, he distracts himself with a record of Mozart music to avoid hearing about the debts he owes. Apparently, Mathau is something of a Mozart nut, and his agent negotiated for an obsession with Mozart's music to be added to the film as a character detail. <laughs> I, think the, it, I think it's a nice touch. I think so, too. I, I think the filmmakers said as much that they were like, that actually really works with this character. Yeah. And uh, there's a scene later when he first sits down to start writing the book Hopscotch mm-hmm. where there's a bit of Mozart playing, and they were having a really hard time figuring out what to play over that scene, and so they let Mathau, like, just pick, pick the right music for it. I love the scene later when he's driving up to the guard gate. And <laughs> the he, Figaro. And he starts singing at the top of his lungs as yeah. he drives off. You can tell he loves the music. <laughs> In the morning, Kendig checks the window to see that his tail is gone, but now there's a bottle of vodka and two shot glasses with a note on the table. So I'm assuming Yaskov killed whoever was waiting? <laughs> Unless it was a member of the KGB. Mm. Yeah, um, that's but, what I presumed. But the note says, 
the fountain 11 a.m why which why for yaskov and so he meets him at this fountain in the morning and yaskov is just finding out that he was let go from his uh division and he offers him a position with the kgb they sit on a park bench for a while and then kendig starts taking the vodka out for them to enjoy like i like that he brought it here in a bag for them to just get drunk in the park i don't really understand how he could work for the kgb being a you know a prominent american agent formerly i don't know that that really makes a lot of sense yeah i feel like there's a couple problems with it i feel like they would need to verify the with their own intelligence that he was let go and that this isn't like him being sold as a double agent to them and actually being a triple agent or something yeah but not even that just like what how is he particularly useful because he's so well known yeah amongst his own agents but he knows a lot of information he wouldn't even have to leave the office to be useful to them i suppose also uh spy thrillers have taught me anything is that sometimes having people who are older makes you less suspicious Hmm. like you know like uh even like clint eastwood's the mule yeah. Like no one's going to suspect this 95 year old man. Yeah. Uh, or um, my, one of my favorite year old man. Yeah. Uh, Cloak and Dagger, where two of the, the smugglers are an elderly couple. Mm. Yeah. Um, because no one ever thinks to, to question them to be spies. It's just making me think of Mulaney's review of the mule. <laughs> 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 so great. Yo, we also forgot to mention 90 yes. year old Clint Eastwood. <laughs> has two threesomes in this movie. And he directed it. Two. (laughs) Two. I don't think you guys understand. I've had one. I guess you probably have none, right? You are correct, sir. Right. (laughs) According to the mule, I have a solid 54 years before that window closes. So look out in 2072 for my wish fulfillment movie, The Mule Laney. Uh, Kendig turns down the offer to join the KGB and but Yaskov is still trying to persuade him but he notices that there's a CIA agent photographing their conversation and he describes the man to Kendig oh he's got a mustache and he looks like this he's like oh that's Follett he's an idiot there's probably no film in the camera Yaskov asks if he's turning him down out of some silly loyalty to America and Kendig says no what are you going to do write your memoirs and it seems like Kendig hadn't considered it until he brings this up. But yeah, that's a great idea. He gets out a typewriter at Isabel's home and he starts typing to the Mozart record that Matthau picked out for them. And Isabel is reading his pages in terror. He's sharing some pretty detrimental government secrets. And she says, You're insane. They will obliterate you in five minutes. It'll shake them up. Shake them up. They will send men who will come and kill you. I'll keep one step ahead of them. That's enough. Well, almost enough. I need your help. He asks for her help acquiring a copy machine and a stack of postcards with envelopes. In Meyerson's office, he shares the photos of Kendig and Yaskov with Joe Cutter, who doesn't think it's anything to worry about. They've known each other for years. He and Yaskov used to exchange people at Checkpoint Charlie. Another agent, Leonard Ross, brings in Kendig's file, and Meyerson finds it stuffed with someone else's information. Meyerson makes Kendig Joe's problem to solve. I don't know that that is the smartest thing to do because, you know, Cutter seems to be following in the footsteps of, of this guy. So maybe you don't want to have the guy yeah. who thinks that this guy is doing exactly what he ought to do try to track him down. Well, I, I see, I see that, but I also think that if you are trying to test someone's loyalty, like. You, you know him best, you have to go after him, and you better do it, or else you're yes. out of here too. Yeah. Kendig pulls up at a checkpoint 
at a border crossing singing Barbara of Seville's Figaro. Uh, loudly. Very, very loudly. Well, and this is intentional. Yeah, he's trying to draw attention to himself because he wants he wants this information to make it back to uh-huh. Meyerson where he was and what he was doing. And this is a way to identify him. Isabel carries an armload of envelopes into a post office and mails them to every corner of the world. Paris, Peking, Moscow, Rome, London, Washington, D.C. And these are the first chapter of the book that he wrote. And they're all going to different intelligence agencies, not to publishers. Yes. Meyerson receives the D.C. letter and is shitting himself in the office. It's the first chapter of his book filled with classified information and particularly embarrassing information for the American intelligence agencies. Apparently, the man at the Swiss checkpoint recognized Kendig, and the information was successfully transferred to Meyerson, so Joe is dispatched to locate him. Kendig walks downstairs into the basement of a shop to visit with a forger. He collects three passports, three driver's licenses, and a credit card. The guy prices him 7,500 francs, and he counters with 6,000, claiming his department is on a budget. The forger would definitely be charging more if he knew Kendig was a rogue agent, (laughs) but luckily he doesn't. He turns down 6000 as impossible, and Kendig makes an offer of 7000 Let me keep the 500 admitting that he has all of the cash of the mm-hmm. full price. But the guy's like, what do you need 500 for? He's like, cherchez la femme, uh, a sandwich or something. <laughs> <laughs> Back in D.C., it seems like Meyerson is asking Joe to take Kendig out, like kill him, before the KGB tries to interrogate him for this information. Kendig finishes up some gambling. He won 10,000 pounds at a casino, and then he heads to the airport to take the Concorde somewhere. Which is awesome. Yeah. I uh, forgot Concords were a thing. Yeah. It's well, they were only, what, it was like the late 80s or early 90s they went away? Well, this is this is 1980. Right. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah, they weren't around for long. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it was definitely into the 90s because Hudson Hawk, they're using the Concorde as well. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Another agent at the CIA, Leonard Ross, tries to track Kendig with Joe, but Joe seems content to just wait for the next clue from Kendig. Ross is looking for some kind of pattern, and Joe tells him, you won't find anything consistent on him. His checks keep bouncing because his signature varies. He's a class act. A call comes in from Kendig, and they trace it to a nearby payphone. On the call, Kendig says that the next chapter is headed to London. Joe hints at what Meyerson has asked him to do, and he says, will you please surrender so I don't have to spend the rest of my life in psychiatry after I kill you, basically? And he's like, oh, wow, that's good. That's really dramatic. (laughs) <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't believe that he has any intention of doing that at the phone booth they find the passport and license for james butler the only pseudonym that they knew so far uh just tucked into the phone book kendig picks up a phone at a diner and calls isabel overseas he tells her that he just said hi to some folks and he asks if she's seen anybody and she says just follow it, the idiot kendig says give him a kiss for me and tell him i'll write kendig has switched his name to charlie hannaway now Isabel is followed out by Follett, who tells her Kendig's mother is sick and they need to find him. She happens to know that his mom died 25 years ago on August the 13th. I believe it was a Friday. Because she knows exactly when it happened and she remembers it. Uh, if that was right, this would probably have been 1954. Uh, meaning this, this scene takes place in 79 and 54 had a Friday, August the 13th. Kendig shows Doing up. his homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also liked about this scene was that they clearly didn't block off the street. Right. Because you keep seeing people who were looking ahead and then suddenly 
walking across the street instead of walk continuing down the sidewalk because they yeah. don't want to be on camera. <laughs> uh, Kendig shows up to rent a summer home somewhere, and the woman checking him in verifies first that he isn't a Democrat, implying that this is Meyerson's home that he's renting. I was so happy when that <laughs> happened. I was like, he's a genius. He denies being a Democrat vehemently, although he probably isn't one because people in the intelligence agency have historically have been conservative mm-hmm. um usually republican voters it's only in the last few years that the deep state really took over all the intelligence agencies <laughs> for some reason uh he puts a mozart cassette tape on and goes about working on the next chapter of his book he props up a photo that he finds of meyerson framed alongside the typewriter and then immediately spills a beer all over everything Back in D.C., Meyerson frets over Chapter 2, which spells out CIA attempts on Castro's life with poisoned cigars, and then another assassination attempt on Papadoc Duvalier, who was the former president of Haiti. Uh, did we mention that the photograph changes? N- not yet. Okay. But it, it will soon. <laughs> uh, Joe assures Meyerson that they're very close to locating him, that he rented a car somewhere in, like, in the south, and... I, th- I think they tracked him to like South Carolina or something like that. So they're they're closing in on him, they think, but they don't realize that, that they also happen to be closing in on Meyerson's summer home. As Kendi continues typing, every time he looks at, back at Meyerson's photo, it seems more and more worried. It seems just putting this information to the page is kind of disgusting, Kendig, and he says out loud that he would never go back to this job, even if they gave it back to him. He meets with a local guy named Maddox, uh, even after Maddox's assistant tries desperately to keep him out of the office. He tells Maddox that his name is Jim Murderson. (laughs) (laughs) And he does a really terrible southern accent until Maddox gives him permission to drop it. Oh, you can drop the accent. It's terrible. Uh, He tells Maddox he would like to charter an airplane, and Maddox says, I'm not in the airplane business. So Kendig drops a big money clip with a few hundred bucks, and Maddox wordlessly sweeps it into a desk drawer. (laughs) After an awkward silence, Kendig's like, Can I have my clip back, please? And, and and Maddox is like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah sorry. <laughs> it's like it's like perfectly like like you he understands his mistake. Yeah, I also like that. There's actually a line between those two. He's like, so what kind of plane were you looking for? And he's like, well, I was hoping to get some. I'm sorry, can I get the money clip back? Like he, he's distracted from their conversation. <laughs> but Maddox offers to connect a Murderson with a discreet charter pilot. And on his way out, he's like, by the way, my name's not Murderson. <laughs> and he's like. I didn't think it was, Mr. Murchison. <laughs> Kendig speaks to a man who has modified a pickup truck for him in a very strange way. There are two barrels attached to the tailgate and then a big lever in the cab. The guy asks Kendig what it's for, and in his weird southern accent, he says that it's they, they have some work to do on some driveways. <laughs> and the guy he's talking to seems to think it's such a bad accent that he literally doesn't even know what Kendig is saying. What would you say he's going to use it for? Oh, we just got some driveways we're working on. Some driveways? Yeah, you know, driveways. Oh, driveways. <laughs> and then as he's leaving, Kendrick says bye. <laughs> and he doesn't even understand that. Goodbye, sir. Bye. Bye. At a bar later, Kendrick touches base with the discreet pilot. He tells her that he wants a flight for him and a girl. And I don't really know why he mentions a girl. Uh, I don't know either. It, it, it's was yeah. the original plan for she was never going to be there okay i don't know yeah um i'm assuming but but she wouldn't have had to file a manifest um unless well it might have been a weight concern 
like in terms of you you need to accommodate this much weight but but is he bringing anything heavy with him uh, i don't know but they do change course uh later so maybe he needed that extra fuel weight oh maybe um, that's what it was um or again if someone were to sweater not not sweater but sweat her for information <laughs> yeah uh and she says that anyone charter a plane is like yeah man and his a girl and a they man would, and woman they'd be like well that doesn't fit what yeah. we're looking for interesting I, I, I tend to think it's that it's the fact that he changes the destination on her at the last second and now he knows she'd have enough fuel to carry them right. the, full, the full distance. Kendig packs his stuff and he stages it in the old pickup truck just parked out in the woods behind the house. He calls Isabel in Salzburg and she's like, this is a tapped phone. What are you doing? Like, why would you call me at my house? They know where I live and they know that we're in touch with each other. But he doesn't care. He says that Follett's an incompetent who can't trace the call anyway. And Follett is like in the car listening to this conversation with other agents. <laughs> so he's getting embarrassed by everything that uh, that Kendig has to say about him. But they've narrowed the call down to the, a Georgia area code and they're continuing to track it. Not to be gruesome, old darling, but I hope you've written out your will. Yes, I've left everything to the Flat Earth Society. Which is incredible that that <laughs> even existed yeah. back then. Well, you know, that that has existed for a long time, Richard. Like <laughs> He tells Isabel that he's loaded up with guns in his hideout. They'll never take me alive. <laughs> and like the two agents in the surveillance van are like sweating this out like, oh God, like it's going to be a bloodbath. They call Meyerson with the address after they successfully trace the call and he just flips out. I don't fucking believe it. Excuse me, Beverly. To his secretary who he just cursed out in front of. Kendig starts prepping the house Kevin McAllister style with a bunch of firecrackers stapled to the walls and then he lights a long fuse. I was really concerned. I was like, you probably should have done this before you made the call because he's going really, really slowly. (laughs) And I was like, this is taking your... Because there's a couple times in this movie where I don't know if they were intentionally trying to show his age or maybe that he was going to slip up. I thought that this was all foreshadowing for him to make a big mistake. Well, there is one mistake that he makes, kind of. Yeah, but but a couple times he, he asked people to repeat something or he has trouble understanding what 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 is going on. And then, like, this, like, he, he's having, like, a really hard time getting up off the floor to, to staple these things in the place. I was like, oh, man, is this, like, going to be leading up to where this story's going to go? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't. But it turns out it's like a Bronco Billy thing where he's just fucking up a couple times and it doesn't play into the story at all yeah i i'm not super clear on why he thought this was a, a good idea i get i get that he wants to screw with his former boss and yeah. mess his house up yeah but it seems like a little bit of a close call and you probably that you probably wouldn't want that you could you could I- have made it a little less of a close call i think it they might be cheating it in the edit i don't think it was that close a call i think he could have left like an hour before they got there but he doesn't because they see him leaving with the guy but he i think he was out in the truck the whole time so there was no danger of him getting shot in the house no because he captures ross first before he gets in the truck yeah, yeah. Oh, on the way yeah i guess so so it's like but a we just of see minutes. he's just in the woods though so yeah yeah, yeah. so i don't think he's been in the house the whole well, time I, I don't mean it's a close call in terms of him getting shot in the house yeah i mean it's a close call in terms of him getting captured yeah i mean yeah. Ha- had they brought more men then he wouldn't have found a way out of this but maybe he just doesn't care and i'm not clear why he even took the guy well i mean we're getting ahead of the story a little yeah. bit 
near the house, Meyerson lands in a helicopter and he's met by the FBI. Uh, the FBI agents obviously claim jurisdiction here because this is a domestic issue. Yeah. CIA and is not allowed to operate within the United States without the U- without the cooperation of a local enforcement agency. Right. Myerson knows before they get there that it's going to be his house, but all these people are like, oh, it's just down the road away. And he's like, yeah, I know where it is, but he, he can't <laughs> tell anyone specifically that it's his house because he doesn't want that to be the reason that he's telling them not to shoot at it. But he does when they get up close to the house. He's like, oh, well, you know, uh, we should really be careful here because you know there's no reason to damage this house unnecessarily and he's like well i don't know i heard that he had a bunch of guns in there and he was ready to go down in a in a blaze of glory and he's like and joe cutter steps in and he's like that doesn't make sense he he never carries a gun so he, he wouldn't do that and he's like that's not what i heard as soon as they uh, fire some tear gas into the house the firecrackers start going off and all the agents start returning fire even leonard ross with the cia who was just watching this go down is firing into the house now when Kendig sneaks up on him from behind and basically takes him hostage. I'm not sure why he bothered to do this. He could have just gotten in the truck and driven away. He had three passports from the beginning and he's only used two of them. So yeah, far. and and this is the most really aggressive thing that he does aside from a thing later on. Jumping the guy and knocking the gun away? Well, the, like later or now? Now. Right now. Yeah, right now. No, yeah, he, he pretends to hold him at gunpoint so he can grab his actual gun right. and then holds him at gunpoint. It seems really out of character yeah. for him, in fact, because he just doesn't seem like threatening somebody's life is in yeah. his MO. So, because later on, he'll dump the bullets out and toss the gun back to him. In character, he should have taken those bullets out immediately and, out. Yeah, there and, and just pretended there. to hold him hostage. Yeah. And then yeah. when he lets him go, he, the guy would see, oh, there's no bullets. Well, right. maybe it, when they were in close quarters in the truck, he would have seen that there were no bullets anyway. That's true, because you could see right into the, the cylinder. Cylinder. There you go. It's entirely possible the only reason that they have this confrontation is because this the actor playing Leonard Ross is actually Walter Matthau's son mm-hmm. and they wanted for them to have a moment a together. A bigger role. Yeah. Um, there's also a really great line from the FBI agent who asked what this guy did and Myerson says it's a matter of national security and the FBI agent responds, Yeah, that's a phrase that's lost a good deal of meaning lately. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, this movie's on point for yeah. 1980. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, but yeah, uh, Kendig and Ross get into the pickup truck. Uh, Kendig is driving but he's still holding the gun on Ross. And eventually the damage to the home is pushing Meyerson over the edge and he starts shouting for a ceasefire to everyone. And they do stop. And suddenly they notice Kendig like way behind them leaving in the pickup truck with Ross as the house is like billowing with smoke, probably about to burn down. Everyone moves to pursue Kendig except for Joe, who says that he'll stay behind to call the fire department. Which again, as Meyerson, I would think, this is they're fucking tricking me mm-hmm. there's no reason for him alone to stay behind with kendig well, i think he just doesn't want to be caught in whatever trap is coming next yeah as they follow him down the road kendig pulls the new lever in his truck and it dumps two barrels in the bed and there's oil that just pours out all over the road and makes it slick enough that the drivers following him go flying off the road which is funny because this is like such an old school like spy move Mm -hmm. but then he tried to do it just like a practical application of this like joke spy trick meyerson climbs out of the back seat and says now i know what fbi stands for fucking ball busting imbeciles but so (laughs) i found two versions of this movie and uh one version basically every line that ed Beatty says is 
is 80 yard over to take out the curse words so in in the tv save version he says freaking backbreaking bimbasols freaking backbreaking bimbasols <laughs> which for the record is actually the fbb not, <laughs> not the fbi <laughs> after driving for a while Candig dumps ross and takes his passport and then he takes the truck to a nearby dock and it seems like he just goes to sleep in the truck like yeah. until he can hear the plane coming that he's supposed to leave in but i feel like you're just adding an unnecessary risk because they saw you in the truck they're clearly still in pursuit mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's what bothers me about this whole last section is the is the weird timing of it all yeah that i'm like i get that you kind of want them to be chasing you for the last part of your plan to work out because you want them to witness what you're planning but i don't really understand the timing of you know taking a guy with you and dropping him off and then sleeping in your truck and waiting till the next morning yeah there's no reason she couldn't have been getting there right as he did yeah for him to pick up and leave when he gets on the plane she asks where his lady friend is and he says her mother wouldn't let her come the plan was to head to martinique but then he gives her a new longitude and latitude which she recognizes as bermuda when they land in bermuda the pilot tells him that he reminds her of her father that's always been my problem which is already funny before I realized that this is his actual stepdaughter playing this character. <laughs> we see Kendig in his hotel room, placing his own photograph into the passport that he took from Ross, an identity I assume they would keep tabs on after he took Ross's passport. Like, wouldn't Ross say to them immediately, he took my passport, he's probably going to use my name? Uh, I guess only if he was going to be traveling internationally. Maybe he just didn't but, even think that, that he had lost it or... But at the very least, I feel like he would have told Myerson, and Myerson would have been like, I need to know any international flights with this guy's Mm. passport showing up. Myerson pitches Joe Cutter briefly on setting up a honeypot for Kendig, and then Joe suggests instead that he touch base with Isabel in Salzburg to try and get a step ahead of him instead of waiting for clues. Kendig moves through customs in London, and he tells the agent that he's writing a book. What's the name of the book? Topscotch. Good title. Joe pleads with Isabel for some way to reach Kendig before the Russians do, and she jokes, You mean Myerson's methods of termination are more humane than the Russians? Uh, if you guys are going to kill him, why should I help you? Because <laughs> everyone's going to kill him. She seems to already know that, that this is the plan, regardless of who gets there first. Kendig shows up at an airfield looking for Ludlow. You mean Ludlum? He's over there. Joe and Ross have a bridge of spies moment with Yaskov and his deputy. Yaskov tells Joe... If I tell you the city, you can find him, right? And Joe says, I'm not going to make any kind of a deal with you. And then Yaskov insists that it's too dangerous to let Kendig roam free, so he hands over the city, London, willingly. He expects a quid pro quo someday in the future, though. He tells Joe that Kendig is operating under the name Leonard Ross, and Joe tells Ross as much. Like, oh, by the way, that passport that he took from you, that's his passport now. Kendig steps into a shop and asks the guy at the counter questions in German and French, before finally settling on English that they both speak fluently. Uh, He asks if Alfie Booker still works here, and they understand the question, but they're dumbfounded by his sudden perfect English speech (laughs) when he started with German and French for no reason in London. Uh, They confirm that Alfie is just around the back. Alfie appears to be some sort of electronics whiz, and he asks Kendig how the transistor worked last time, and apparently it went well. Kendig draws out a sheet of blueprints to go over a very more complicated uh, task. Alfie laughs at the blueprints a bit. Apparently there's something funny here I'm not getting from reading them over their shoulders. 
Myerson reaches out to Giles, his English counterpart, for some cooperation in locating Kendig. And Giles agrees, but he has a bit of a laugh at their expense because because he's still getting these intelligence packets in the mail from Kendig, and he knows everything that they're trying to hide. Joe suspects that Kendig is looking for a publisher, and he would naturally be looking for a larger one, so Joe is sure that he's actually looking at a smaller one. He goes back and forth on this idea a couple times, though. Yeah. Kendig calls Isabel in public from his hotel, and Follett watches the conversation. He tells her that he will be staying at the Feathers Inn tonight. It sounds from context like they've stayed there together before. Isabel invites Follett into her home, insisting she is expecting a call from Kendig, and then sneaks out while pretending to get ice for his drink. Follett sees her leaving, but can't follow because her Doberman has him cornered. And that whole play seems like really dangerous to the dog. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He's probably just going to shoot the dog. Yeah, if he's a bad agent, that's the first thing he would do is just pull out his gun and shoot this dog in this house and leave. Or maybe if he's a good agent, I don't know. Maybe that would have been the right move. But Kendig goes to meet with the publisher, Mr. Westlake. Westlake is very excited to have landed this book. He thinks it's going to be their biggest book of the year. Probably bigger than that if they're a small publisher and this is like international intrigue. This would be a big deal book for anybody. They each warn each other of the risk they're about to take with this partnership. And we cut to Myerson and Cutter taking the hovercraft like we did earlier this year in Bon Voyage Charlie Brown because, as we mentioned, (laughs) the tunnel was not a thing yet. They try to stonewall Westlake in an effort to get him to hand over the manuscript. I am fairly certain that if they already made a deal with the British government, which I think they did, that Westlake would not be allowed to publish this book if it were forbidden by the government because England has weird rules about freedom of the press. You need, like royal permission to do things yeah but i don't know if these guys i don't know if the british government actually cares that this stuff gets published yeah he does say it's not their problem it's not their problem they don't care if it gets published they they are cooperating in so much as yeah we'll do you the favor and let you operate here and try to get your guy yeah but then maybe the point is also that he doesn't he's not worried about the legal implications of doing it because he's going to publish the book anyway. Like he seems to not even care if they kill him because he has like a dead man switch of I sent this manuscript all yeah. over the place and the book's going to get published no matter yeah. what. Right. It's po- it's possible that he even sent it to other countries yeah. where he could totally publish it yeah. without the British government's rules. But he's essentially decided to stake his career on releasing this book. I think your friend Kendig has you well and truly by the short hairs. They tell Westlake that he is signing Kendig's death warrant by publishing the book, and he reminds them that Kendig asked for it to be published, and only he can unask. He then tells them where in London Kendig is staying, the Windsor Hotel, potentially actually signing his death warrant. <laughs> I don't know why you would be like, by the way, uh, he's at this hotel, he's in this room, like, go, go I, get him. I think that told. Kendig probably told him to tell them that. that. Maybe that's true. They meet Yaskov in the lobby, of Kendig's hotel and they all head up to his room where they find a recording with a message for all of them he tells joe to make everybody drinks and he starts to he points them to the last chapter which is there in an envelope and that's basically the end of the recording he just says oh here you go here's the rest yeah. of the book if you wanted it um i also like that the only one other person who i think who accepts the drink is yaskov yeah, <laughs> yeah <that laughs> like he's the only one who's like yeah he's got us and it's not even yaskov's drink like he's he, i like that in the message he says oh, well, uh, sorry, I, f- I would have given vodka, but I completely didn't think about it. And it's like, you recorded this message in advance. Like, you could have gotten vodka. But, uh, yeah. Isabel pulls up to the Feathers Inn. And back in his own room at the Hilton, Joe finds Kendig waiting in his room. 
with a gun trained on him. Kendig ties him to a chair and prepares to gag him when Joe says that he's backed himself into a corner here. But Kendig says, no, you let me out of it. And Joe says, I can't do you any favors here. And he's like, you already did because you knew this gun was empty and you surrendered to this chair willingly. And then he wraps up his mouth to leave. Before he leaves, Kendig tells Joe that he bought a small plane and he'll be taking off across the channel in the morning. He inspects Joe's gun and finds it too unloaded and congratulates Joe on being a cool CIA agent. <laughs> Ross gets a prank call about Joe being tied to the chair from Eleanor Roosevelt. Hello? Hello? Joe Cutter is tied to a chair in his room. You'd better cut him loose. What? Who is this? This is Eleanor Roosevelt. Next, Kendig gives Isabel a wake-up call. And after the call, a police car pulls up beside Kendig's car and he tells them that he got a flat. I think he actually got one because this would seem like an insanely reckless part of the plan if it mm-hmm. wasn't an accident. Yes, because he's, he's not within his own control right. at this point. And, and I do like the conversation is like, I went to look for a spare and it's not there. It's like, should be in the trunk. I know it should be, but it's not there. <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, really, I'm not, cra- I'm not stupid. I know it's supposed to yeah. be there. Uh, At the police station, they offer to call him a cab, but then somebody suddenly recognizes his face from the APB that Giles put out. I don't know if it's called an APB there, but something like that. They start to question him in the office, but he jams something into a nearby electric socket to take the lights out in the room, and then he snags their keys and their patrol car. Well, and he's being a little too obvious with his motions yeah with like, the hand if, jamming if you're him. suspecting this guy i wouldn't be let him letting him like make all these crazy hand gestures behind his back yeah but uh, he's able to steal the car that he rode in on and he races it back to the airfield where his plan is due to unfold but now he's like way behind schedule because he got stuck in this police station for a while he sees isabel on his way and he tells her to sit tight until he gets back when did you join the police force it's the only car i could find with any gas in it Kendig is spotted from the air by Yaskoff and Meyerson in a helicopter, and he cranks the prop of his new biplane and races away from them into the air. Is that really how you start those things? It mm-hmm. seems so dangerous. Yeah. It was. Well, that's why um, you would say things like contact to let, because what you did was you started spinning the propeller, and then the pilot would engage the electrodes to start. So you, you got it spinning a little bit so that the engine could be would would start a little bit easier yeah rather than from a dead stop but you would have you say contact because you're telling them i'm holding on to the propeller keep your hand away from that starter yeah jesus christ seems like a accident waiting to happen yeah. Yeah. and i'm sure it happened a few times he does a few tricks with his plane in the air uh trying to avoid this helicopter while myerson is leaning out of it firing at him with a huge revolver and uh, eventually the biplane swings out over the water and just explodes and then we cut to Kendig in some shack, and it seems like he's been piloting the plane remotely, and he just faked his death. But it bothers me. It's a little unsatisfying because there's no point in the scene where he could have exited the plane without being Correct. Yeah, so that was my problem with it because I'm like, they have eyes on him when he starts that propeller. Yeah, so and point- when he jumps into the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at what point did he jump out of this plane? Unless he literally got in one side and literally got out of the other side while it was rolling down the field. And they the were just field. distracted but by they, the landing like and taking off again. And I, yeah. I guess. It's not very clear. But he didn't. He's, it's not like he's wearing a parachute like he ejected when right. we no, lost track of Right. No, I think he never him. took off in the plane. I get that. But I feel like they had eyes on him the whole time. So. Yeah. 
seems weird that they didn't notice. I, I think it would have helped a little bit more to know more about the blueprints or things that were being done. Because it seems like the Alfie was having like a lot of hard time. He said he had to call in a specialist to help with his plans. Like, you really need that much help well, maybe, creating a remote system for Well, this it plane? was a remote system and then also the trans-dimensional portal. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So that's why he needed to like call. Had to somebody. construct the tesseract inside of the back of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I gotta give Loki a call on this one. Uh, but Yaskov, Meyerson, Ross, and Joe mourn him as they as they watch like a kind of bad painting of a plane crash on the ocean surface. Mm-hmm. How and did they catch up with him again? I forget. Because they because they found out from the the British police that he was nearby. I guess right. Yeah. But then, how did they know exactly where he was? Well, Cutter, uh, he told Cutter where he would be, but he uh, even Myerson says they won't. He won't have expected us to fly by helicopter. Okay, but so... apparently he did. And they brought Yaskov because that was the fulfillment the of the quid pro quo. No, I get that. I was just wondering, like he doesn't really explain exactly where he's taking off from to Cutter. So I think he I... does. I I forget the exact wording, but when he's leaving. The hotel room he says oh i bought a plane and i'm going to take off from something something uh, okay. airfield okay so he he does just plain old tell them so yeah that they could they know and then they think they're getting there faster than he anticipated and he ended up getting there yeah. late and we also think he's getting there that that they're beating him there because we saw that he got a flat and everything so right. but i so think he made up plan the time was by probably racing. for him to be in that shack the whole time and just take off right as they arrived mm-hmm. so probably that, yeah, yeah. But I do like that when they're all standing there looking at the at the flames on the ocean that basically Meyerson and Ross are both like, well, he's dead. Yeah. Thank God. And Yaskov and Joe both kind of know exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. They're like, all right, cool. That, that's fine. Let's go back to work then. Well, because Joe says he better stay dead. Yeah. yeah. Kendig finds Isabel back in her car and they decide they're going to head to the south of France. And we cut to probably months later at a bookshop where Hopscotch is already on the store shelves. Kendig, now in a ridiculous brown-faced Indian costume, speaks with the clerk in the store about the author's mysterious disappearance. Kendig tells her that he heard the man was killed by his own men, and she puts forth the theory that he faked his death and that he's living in Australia before Isabel tugs him around the corner by his arm, and she starts to tell him to cut it out with these dumb disguises because everybody thinks you're dead anyway, so there's no reason to do this. Nobody's looking for you. And then they leave the store arm in arm. And that's the end of our film. Um, I also thought it was interesting that the photograph on the book is one of the photographs that Follett took. Oh, interesting. And I was like, how did he get that photo? Yeah, they wouldn't have the rights to that. The CIA wouldn't hand that over. I, I, I think it would have been a funny joke to have uh, Yaskov also having a man photographing them. So that the that the in-joke would have been that he just asked Yaskov for a photo yeah. <laughs> that he had of him. After so he, he like blatantly, <laughs> blatantly touched base with the KGB but lets the CIA think he's dead? Yeah. That's funny. But I mean, at that happen. point, he's basically an agent of the KGB if they know he's alive but the CIA doesn't. Yeah. Um, but he, he wants everybody to think he's right. dead because he doesn't want to have the KGB go after him. Yeah. Either. I think it would be it would work just as well to show like you zoom in on the – on the cover of the book and it says like photo credit joe cutter like mm-hmm. he just stole it from the cia so they could use it for the book our director here was ronald neem he was born in 1911 to film director father elwin neem and actress mother ivy close who worked together on titles back in 1912 his parents were making movies in 1912 
He began working as a teenager in the 20s at the newly opened Elstree Studios, where we shot The Shining and Empire Strikes Back earlier this year. He worked as a DP at Elstree as far back as the 30s. He was a DP on something called To Hell with Hitler in 1940, which is cool because that's when Hitler was still alive. <laughs> so I like that <laughs> he got he maybe saw this movie. Uh, in, <laughs> in 42, he was nominated for a special effects Oscar for his work on something called One of Our Aircraft is Missing. In 46, he adapted Charles Dickens' Great Expectations for David Lean, which earned Neem an Oscar nomination for screenwriting. His first directing credit was in 47. In 70, he directed Scrooge with Albert Finney and Alec Guinness. Uh, he also directed The Poseidon Adventure, The Odessa File, and Meteor on his way to his last directing credit uh, in 1990 at the age of 79. He passed away 10 years ago at 99 years old, and he is not the father of actor Christopher Neem, mm. as Richard and I suspected when we saw his name in the opening credits, but his son was a filmmaker, also named Christopher Neem, who coincidentally passed away in June of 2011. I think when we were trying to find the actor, we found the obituary for this filmmaker, and we were right. like, oh no, he died, but it's a different person. Uh, but his son actually passed away within four days of the first anniversary of him dying. So they, they died less than a year apart. Hmm. Uh, the writer of the novel here and of the screenplay, Brian Garfield, he also wrote novels that were adapted into the first installments of the Death Wish and Stepfather thriller franchises. Uh, the other writer, Brian Forbes, was nominated for an Oscar in 1960 for The Angry Silence. He also wrote Chaplin in 1992, and he has acting credits going back to 46, including Cone in Guns of the Navarone and Camp Attendant in A Shot in the Dark. Walter Matthau was Miles Kendig here. He played Lieutenant Garber in The Taking of Pelham 123. He's Charlie Varick in Charlie Varick, Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple, Albert Einstein in IQ. We had him earlier this year in Little Miss Marker. And he reteamed with director Ronald Neem next year for First Monday in October, which is the one about the female Supreme Court justice that we watched the trailer of. Oh, okay. Glenda Jackson plays Isabel von Schoenenberg. She has two Best Actress Oscars for Women in Love and A Touch of Class in 69 and 73, respectively, and two more Best Actress nominations in the 70s alone. That's pretty impressive. Sam Waterston was Joe Cutter. He was Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby. He's Sidney Shanberg in The Killing Fields, D.A. Jack McCoy in like 400 Law and Orders. Uh, he's the spokesperson for Old Glory Robot Insurance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he'll be back for Heaven's Gate later this year. His scenes for this movie had to be pushed back a bit when Heaven's Gate went way over schedule. Ned Beatty played G.P. Meyerson. He was Bobby in Deliverance. He's Arthur Jensen in Network, Otis in Superman. He's the mayor in Rango doing an impression of... Of himself. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he's it's it's an impression of uh, John Houston mm. doing an impression of John Houston from Chinatown. Uh, he's also Lotso yeah, in lots Toy of Story hugging, 3. Lots of hugging bear. Yeah. Again, playing John Houston, probably. I don't know. I, I think it's it's amazing because like, even in Superman, he was older. Yeah. You know? and And he's just still around... It's impressive. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying like. I'm not trying to be weird about it. I'm just saying like, it's very impressive that he he's still going. Yeah, he's doing great stuff still. Uh, Herbert Lom was Mikhail Yaskov. He plays Charles Dreyfus in Return of the Pink Panther, Pink Panther Strikes Again, Revenge of, Trail of, Curse of, and Son of. He was Doctor Sam Wyzak in The Dead Zone. He's Levantus in Spartacus. He's Louis, aka Mister Harvey, in the original Lady Killers. 
David Mathau was Leonard Ross. Oh, sorry, I had a, I wanted to add a, another Lom credit. Yeah. Uh, he was a uh, Colonel Bachner was his character in the Richard Chamberlain King Solomon's Mines where Richard Chamberlain plays Alan Quartermain. Nice. Uh, it's it's a total Indiana Jones like knockoff. I mean, I know Alan Quartermain predates that, yeah. but just the whole style of it. Is Quartermain uh, from the same author as like the John Carter stuff? No, no, it's it's a different different novel. Okay. David Mathau was Leonard Ross. He's the son of Walter, but not the son credited as his assistant earlier this year on Miss Marker. So we've had two sons of Mathau in credits this year. George Baker played Parker Westlake. He was Sir Hilary Bray in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's the guy whose name James Bond steals for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He's playing Hillary. Uh, he was Captain Benson in The Spy Who Loved Me. He's Tiberius in I, Claudius. And he played Fletcher in Folks earlier this year. Severn Darden was Maddox. Like we said in our previous episode, he was Culp in Battle for and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. He's Van Helsing in Saturday the 14th, Dr. Meredith in Real Genius. And uh, we've had him already this year in Small Circle of Friends, Why Would I Lie?, in God We Trust, he was the priest that made Marty Feldman shout all of his confessions. Ray Charlson played Clausen. His credit is Crow Elf in Hawk the Slayer later this year. So I don't know what that means. Crow, Elf. That was his credit. So maybe he just does the voice of a crow and the voice of an elf. In Hawk the Slayer from 1980. He plays a floor manager in Shock Treatment. And he's an American prisoner in Empire of the Sun. Joe Dorsey played security guard. He was Connolly in War Games, Sheriff Bates in the Philadelphia Experiment, Congressman Doton in Real Genius, and Hal Abramson in Brainstorm. Yolanda King played the coffee shop manager. This is the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. Huh. Cool. And uh, Alan Cuthbertson played Sir Giles Chartermain. He was Major Baker in Guns of the Navarone. He's Melbourne in The Sea Wolves, which we'll be covering next year. And he's Peter Montrose in The Mirror Cracked later this year. That's all I had for I have one. Ooh, what do you got? I had one. So I know, uh, did you recognize Mrs. Meyerson? She's on screen for all of like five seconds, and I instantly recognized her. I don't even remember her being in the movie. When they are at his house yeah, yeah they go to myerson's house and she's she's like a super space cadet she's yes. not even listening to what, oh, what they're that's saying mrs myerson i thought that was like an assistant that he had at the house because he jokes well about... I, I i didn't know who she was relative to him but yeah. i looked her up in the credits and she's listed as mrs myerson yeah. so but she was at his house and and i instantly recognized her she is the um what do you call it the social worker from mrs doubtfire oh okay yeah that is constantly touching base with Robin Williams. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the the one where he's got the the cake on his face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all. I have. Good stuff. I like that. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure she's in other. She's in Liar Liar. She's yeah. in uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. The American President. She's in a bunch of stuff. American okay. President. It, she plays a very similar character in all those movies where she's like an assistant or an office. Kind I remember of the scene where worker. Michael Douglas has like pile over his face and yeah that was, that was, that was <laughs> it's <insane>. very similar <laughs> he, he he asks what the state flower is of i think of virginia and she says it's the dogwood <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know excellent point of trivia um i enjoy this film a lot i like Mathau as a spy it reminded me of charlie varick specifically yeah. when they're on the airfield and stuff yeah. like that um i think that movie's better but uh i enjoyed this one and uh I think all the spy stuff makes sense except for where he's unnecessarily jeopardizing himself. Yeah. And 
that last moment when he does the switcheroo for the plane doesn't make sense because there's no way he could have gotten out of that plane without them seeing him. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, it reminded me a lot. It, it it felt like an older movie than it was. Yes. It reminded me a lot of the sort of 1960s caper films, you know. Probably because it was directed by an almost 70-year-old guy. Yeah, that probably contributed to it. I, I also felt like this was closer to Mathau's wheelhouse than Little Miss Marker earlier this year. Yeah. I felt like I don't think he was deviating from the script in that movie. I think he was just reading the lines that he had, uh, which there were funny lines in it. But here you can clearly see yeah. him improvising moments that are just really sell it so much. Well, I also feel that this movie was shot a little bit closer to him. Like, and I mean, like physically, the camera was closer to him. Yeah, that's where a little true. Miss Marker, all the scenes were like a stage play. That's yeah. true. All mm-hmm. these really, really wide shots where you couldn't see Walter Matthau's expressions. Yeah, and and which this, is like the whole selling point of him. Yeah, he's got a very unique face. You want to see it, and so I feel like this movie was always really close up on him. Yeah, I mean, and just the nature of this kind of movie just plays into the kind of character that he does the best. You yeah. know, it, it a character where. I know more than you mm-hmm. is is just his his best role. I do feel like Glenda Jackson is a little bit wasted. I mean, you have someone who has two Oscars and yeah. two nominations for for best actress and she has almost nothing to do in the story other than mail some letters for him that we could have seen him do on his own. Yeah. Uh it just seems like they could have given her more of a part to play in this whole heisty situation, mm-hmm. but um I love the the relationship between the Sam Waterston character and Walter Matthau is great. I think it plays really well. I think Ned Beatty's great as an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, you as never he, see him as, as such a pathetic asshole. Like usually yeah. he's like a powerful jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing Sam Waterston this young. I was, he just yeah. looked yeah. like such a baby. I've never seen him this young before. But yeah, um, I think it was a good one. Uh, what do you think up or down, Jess? It's an up for me. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, same here. Uh, it's an up. Uh, I don't think that I probably, although I, I say that now, but we'll probably put it in the exact same spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't think I was as enamored with this movie as you guys were. Um, I did enjoy it. Um, I, I I I can't really say too many bad things about it. I just I I was just I can't remember really laughing anytime in it. I laughed pretty loud at the money clip line, just because the yeah. the look on his face and the way he delivers the line, like it just. It really sells it for me. Well, because it almost seemed like an outtake. Yeah. Like like he messed up. It's like, can I get the money clip? Back? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I wasn't blown away. I I think it's a fine movie, though. Yeah. I think it. I actually laughed harder at it the second time because when I knew the line was coming, I noticed how distracted he looks mm-hmm. between the guy taking the money clip and him asking for it back. <laughs> he's just like, like just perturbed and he's just like... Ugh. Am I going to ask for it? Is it is it worth it to ask for the money clip mm-hmm. back? Yeah, you know what? I want the money clip. <laughs> I'm going to ask for it back here. But um, yeah, I think it was pretty great. Um, Richard, where's this going? Letterbox for you. Um, this is going in uh, the 32 position. Okay. Just below Brubaker and just above Night of the Juggler. All right. Jess, where do you have it? I have it pretty high. I have it on uh, number 14 now that oh, there's wow. a handy number next to the list. <laughs> yeah, we, we're dumb, and we just figured out that we could put numbers in our list on Letterboxd and see exactly where the movies rank. So No more counting. No more guessing. It's yeah. number 14. Um, it is below The Changeling and above The Long Riders. And I think it belongs there because... I enjoy this movie a lot, and I always lean towards enjoying 
sort of comedies and upbeat movies like a lot of the other movies in this general area like the changeling ordinary people my brilliant career the long riders the big red one they're all dramas yeah you know and and I, I will always like a comedy better than a drama. And right. so I think of the comedies, this is r- right up there. Obviously, it's not going to be up there with like Airplane, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's still it's still up there on my list. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of right between you guys. You had it in the 30s and you were in the 10s. I have it at 26. Uh, I have it just below Blue Lagoon and just above Blue's Brothers. So it's in a blue sandwich. Um, yeah. I think that's everything we have for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing My Bodyguard which IMDb describes like so. When a boy comes to a new school and gets harassed by a bully, he acquires the services of the school's most feared kid as a bodyguard. We leave you now with the trailer for My Bodyguard. Did you get this beautiful hair? Kmart. <laughs> so funny. And if we go to the bathroom, if I can help it. Well, what do you do? Just hold it in. Stay away from liquids. Everyone knows that going to school is an education in itself. He wanted the dust. The gum's not the worst. It's the boogers that freak me out. One false move might wipe you out. And any meal could be your last. I should know. My name is Clifford Peach. <laughs> and this is my story. die every day for now, you got it. I'm not gonna pay. You got nerve, even if you ain't gonna live long. That was me before. Eat this. What's going on? Who are those guys? Just some kids from school who want to kill me. Hey, Shelly, wanna go to the movies tonight? Sure. Yeah, you have a real good time while you're there, huh? And this is me now. What made the difference? It wasn't my grandmother. Kick him in the cojones. It wasn't my father. I could call the principal again. It wasn't my enemies. You give me trouble. People don't do that around here. It was my bodyguard. You're dead. My bodyguard. A crazy idea. I'd like you to meet my bodyguard. Anything you want to say to me, talk to him first. That led to a great friendship. This is a story of hallway horror, mayhem after math class, and the most important lesson you can learn out of school. You know those things that stunt your growth. That strength has nothing to do with size and everything to do with courage. One of them was short. One of them was strange. Together, they were absolutely unbeatable. My Bodyguard. Hello, this is Terrell. And I'm Nate from Movie, Movie, Film, Film. A podcast where we pick a flick and decide whether it's a movie or a film. We have new episodes every Friday wherever you listen to podcasts. Spotify, Apple, YouTube. So join us. Become part of the discussion of whether Taxi Driver is a movie. Or if a goofy movie is a film. So search Movie, Film, Terrell, Nate to find out.